In this chapter, we have a looking back and a looking forward. Back on God's gracious dealings with his people and forward to his continued grace toward them. Hear now the reading of God's holy word inspired by his spirit and profitable for us. Numbers 33 verse 1. These are the journeys of the children of Israel which went forth out of the land of Egypt with their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. And Moses wrote their goings out according to their journeys by the commandment of the Lord. And these are their journeys according to their goings out. And they departed from Ramesses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the morrow after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with an high hand in the sight of all the Egyptians. For the Egyptians buried all their firstborn, which the Lord had smitten among them. Upon their gods also the Lord executed judgment." And the children of Israel removed from Ramesses and pitched in Sukkoth. And they departed from Sukkoth and pitched in Etham, which is in the edge of the wilderness. And they removed from Etham and turned again unto Pi-Hahiroth, which is before Baal-Zephon, and they pitched before Migdol. And they departed from before Pihahiroth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness, and went three days' journey in the wilderness of Etham, and pitched in Marah. And they removed from Marah, and came unto Elim. And in Elim were twelve fountains of water, and threescore and ten palm trees, and they pitched there. And they removed from Elam and encamped by the Red Sea. And they removed from the Red Sea and encamped in the wilderness of Sin. And they took their journey out of the wilderness of Sin and encamped in Dovkah. And they departed from Dovkah and encamped in Alush. And they removed from Alush and encamped at Rephidim, where was no water for the people to drink. And they departed from Rephidim and pitched in the wilderness of Sinai. And they removed from the desert of Sinai and pitched at Kibroth Hatavah. And they departed from Kibroth Hatavah and encamped at Hazaroth. And they departed from Hazaroth and pitched in Rithmah. And they departed from Rithmah and pitched at Rimon Parez. And they departed from Rimon Parez and pitched in Libna. And they removed from Libna and pitched at Riza. And they journeyed from Riza and pitched at Kehelathah, and they went from Kehelathah and pitched in Mount Shafer. And they removed from Mount Shafer and encamped in Haradah. And they removed from Haradah and pitched in Makeloth. And they removed from Makeloth and encamped at Tahath. And they departed from Tahath and pitched at Tarah. And they removed from Tarah and pitched in Mithkah. And they went from Mithkah and pitched at Hashmona. And they departed from Hashmona and encamped at Mazaroth. And they departed from Mazaroth and pitched in Bene Yakan. And they removed from Bene Yakan and encamped at Hor Hagidgad. And they went from Hor Hagidgad and pitched in Jat Batha. And they removed from Jat Batha and encamped at Abrona. 
And they departed from Ebrona and encamped at Ezion-Geber. And they removed from Ezion-Geber and pitched in the wilderness of Zin, which is Kadesh. And they removed from Kadesh and pitched in Mount Hor in the edge of the land of Edom. And Aaron the priest went up into Mount Hor at the commandment of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt in the first day of the fifth month. And Aaron was 120 and three years old when he died in Mount Hor. And King Arad the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south of the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the children of Israel. And they departed from Mount Hor and pitched in Zalmona. And they departed from Zalmona and pitched in Punan. And they departed from Punan and pitched in Oboth. And they departed from Oboth and pitched in Ije-Abarim, in the border of Moab. And they departed from Iim and pitched in Dibon-Gad. And they removed from Dibon-Gad and encamped in Almon-Diblathaim. And they removed from Almon-Diblathaim and pitched in the mountains of Abarim, before Nebo. And they departed from the mountains of Abarim and pitched in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho. And they pitched by Jordan from Beth Jeshemoth even unto Abel Shittim in the plains of Moab. And the Lord spake unto Moses in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When ye are passed over Jordan into the land of Canaan, then ye shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures and destroy all their molten images and quite pluck down all their high places. And ye shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell therein, for I have given you the land to possess it. And ye shall divide the land by lot for an inheritance among your families. And to the more, ye shall give the more inheritance. And to the fewer, ye shall give the less inheritance. Every man's inheritance shall be in the place where his lot falleth. According to the tribes of your fathers, ye shall inherit. But if ye will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, Then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. Moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. Thus far the reading of the word of Almighty God from Numbers chapter 33. Few comments on this passage. Verses 1 through 49, we have the record of the travels of the people of God, their encampments from the Exodus until then at that present time. And you'll recall they didn't, they didn't go anywhere unless God specifically told them. So all of these are God's dealings with them from one place to the next to the next. Notice verse 2. Moses wrote, it tells us, by the commandment of the Lord. When we say that the Bible is the word of God, we don't mean that it's partly the word of God. We don't mean that it's 99% the word of God. We mean that it is all the word of God. 100% of our Bible is God's word. Because God gave a commandment to Moses and Moses wrote according to the commandment of the Lord. This is why the Bible is called 
God's oracles. Kids, an oracle is a mouthpiece. It's the speaking lips. The the Bible is described to us as theanoustos, God breathed. As you breathe air out of your mouth, so God breathed the scriptures out of his mouth. This is the exact nature of the inspiration of the Bible. It says that they, in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, left Egypt from Ramesses. This was what we would call early April, perhaps, early to mid-April in our reckoning of months. Notice also in verse 3, on the 15th day of the first month, on the morrow after the Passover. Now, if you'll recall from Exodus 12, verse 6, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, and the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it in the evening. So they would take a lamb on the 10th day, they would keep it until the 14th day, and then when would they kill the lamb? At the evening of the 14th day. Now this is very important. There are certain Jewish superstitions that believe that somehow the evening is the beginning of the next day. That is not the case. Here, the evening when they would kill the Passover was the evening of which day? The 14th day. And when they left was the next day, the morrow or the morning after the 14th day, after the Passover. So in God's reckoning, a day begins not at sundown the night before, but after the midnight, the middle of the night. It severs one day from another in our ordinary common reckoning. There's nothing special or holy about the evening before the Sabbath, for example. That's a Jewish superstition based off a misunderstanding of Leviticus 23:32, where they were to reckon the Day of Atonement from evening to evening. That was a special day. God said, that Sabbath you reckon from evening to evening. But the rest of our days we reckon in the ordinary manner from midnight till midnight. And we see this here in this passage. 14th day at evening is still the 14th day. It's not the 15th day. The 15th day is the next morning when you wake up after you've sacrificed the Passover the night before. Let us then keep the Lord's day from midnight to midnight, not in the Jewish error of evening to evening. Notice also there in verse 3, they went out with a high hand. This is what champions do when they go forth victorious. They raise their hands. We are the champions. We have conquered. And so Israel had conquered their adversaries by God's power. God also says that he executed vengeance upon the gods of the Egyptians. Now, mighty ones or gods in scripture are sometimes the names for civil magistrates. They are God's representative or God's lieutenant on earth to execute his vengeance against them that do evil. And so sometimes the Bible recognizes, it says, ye are gods, but all of you shall perish like men in the Psalms. So here it could be that not only did God execute vengeance on the common people of Egypt, but also on their rulers. Or possibly it could be this. Think about the plagues that God sent. What was the first plague that God sent against Egypt? Anybody remember? What's that? I believe it was the blood. It could have been the locust, but I believe it's the blood. In any case, whenever that happened, the blood was against the waters. Does anybody know what the Egyptians worshipped? They worshipped the sun. They also worshipped the river Nile, didn't they? Their waters. 
So the sun was darkened, wasn't it? The Nile was turned to blood. Their cattle that they worshipped, what happened to their cattle? Destroyed. What about all the crops that they would worship? They would actually worship the God who made their crops grow, and that God was shown to be impotent, wasn't he? God executed vengeance on the wicked. Their sun god, their river god, their golden calf god, all the gods were destroyed. Now, the wicked do not believe that this will happen. They do not believe it can happen. They believe that their purposes and their gods are mighty enough to withstand all the assaults of heaven. But are they? They will not stand. The success of the wicked, then, is short-lived. It will eventually fail. In fact, we sang about this in Psalm 35, didn't we? What is it that will happen to the purposes of the wicked who come against God's people? Will they stand? Will their purposes go on forever? No, they will be like chaff before the wind. God's people are to pray and to sing these words for this very reason, so that God may hear our prayers and our cries and may bring his vengeance down. Are we asking him to do that? Does the church ask God to avenge us the wrongs of those who come against his elect? We don't. We are impotent. We don't have the power that God put in his word to say, sing this. Call upon me. Jesus said that God will avenge his elect who do what? Cry to him day and night. So we must cry to him, Lord, avenge us our wrong. Come against our oppressors. Cause their purposes to be short-lived. Drive them before the wind like chaff. Make all their purposes come against themselves and they fall into the pit that they've dug for us. This is how we ought to pray. The Psalms tell us, Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness, for his anger endureth but a moment, in his favor is life. We may have hard times. We may have troubles, but they will be short-lived. God will undo them. We must hold this perspective on our sufferings and troubles. Verses 5 through 49, we have the various encampments. I reckon 42 total, 42 encampments for 42 years, about one a year. They did not go at every single year they would move. Some were longer, some were shorter. But about 42 or one per year. They pitched in verse 8 at Mara. This is detailed for us in Exodus 15 where they lusted for water. You remember that? God provided what? A tree, didn't he? The tree was cast into the bitter waters and what then happened to the waters? They became waters of life, didn't they? So this is in Exodus chapter 15. Verse 11, they encamped in the wilderness of sin where they murmured against Moses. Do you remember the first taste they had of the manna? That's in this passage, Exodus 16, there at Marah. They murmured. Then they encamped, verse 14, at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. So what happened? People are thirsting. They chide with Moses. What does Moses do? He strikes something. What is it he strikes? He hits a rock, doesn't he? The rock that followed them was who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He would be smitten so that life would come forth when he was smitten for us. We are the sinners, the ungrateful. Moses comes and demonstrates for us the gospel 
in a nutshell. Christ would be stricken, smitten, and afflicted, and we would receive salvation. I note then that this Old Testament that we have before us is filled with prophecies, with types, with shadows of Jesus Christ himself and of the gospel of our salvation. We must then read it with wisdom, but also with delight, knowing that God had designed our salvation from before the foundations of the world. And when he gave us the Bible, he said, I'm going to give you preparations. I'm going to give you prophecies in living people, actual circumstances, things that really occurred are going to point you forward to my son. Let us be edified and rejoice in the scriptures of the Old Testament, which are able to make us wise unto salvation, which is by faith in Christ Jesus. Then verse 16, we have Kibroth Hatavah, if you remember, Numbers 11. That means the graves of those who were lusting. Remember, God opened up graves for them and cast them into those graves for their lust. They were judged with quail that rotted in their teeth. Verse 36 reminds us of the wilderness of Zin, which is in Kadesh. This is where the spies were sent in Numbers 13. So this is about two years in up to this point. All these various places, two years worth of places. But then what happened is for 40 days, they spied out the land. And so they did not believe in God's promise. They did not inherit the land at that time. And they had to wander one year for every day where the spies were in the land. Verse 38 tells us of Aaron's death. Numbers 20, verses 24 through 28. You recall that at the death of the high priest, certain things would happen. Especially if someone was in a city of refuge, it would be like the ending of an era. So the death of Aaron tells us we are now in a new era. There's a new day dawning. There are new things that are going to happen at that time. Verse 40 reminds us of King Arid the Canaanite. We read about this in Numbers 21. This is a better part in Israel's history. You'll recall that Israel vowed a vow to destroy all the cities of the Canaanites under King Arid. And God heard their vow and said, yes, I will bless you with success. Israel then destroyed all the cities of Arad, the king of Canaan. And so that's a great piece of history of fidelity on Israel's part. Then verses 50 through 56 of Numbers 33, we have a divine command and warrant to conquer the land of Canaan in fulfillment of God's promise. Notice that God's promise always comes with precepts. He always has commandments together with promises. I give you the land, that's my promise. You do this. You drive out the inhabitants, for example. He gave them a duty. Drive them all out. Now this we must take as all scriptures in the context of the rest of the Bible. Did Rahab have to die? No, and why is that? Because she was converted to the religion of the true God. So this command to completely wipe out the Canaanites, there are exceptions, but basically all of them have to die. All of them are being judged by God, and Israel is the executioner of God's vengeance against these wicked people. He says not only drive out the inhabitants, but also he says to destroy their pictures. This word for picture is like a showpiece, a figure, or even man's imagination, his images, his pictures, his carved figures, 
Or even it can refer to man's conceits of himself, an image a person has of themselves, a mental picture, in other words. But this here is to be destroyed, he said. Why is that? He also says to do the same thing in verse 52 to their molten images. When you take a metal and you heat it up, it becomes like a liquid. At a certain point, metals will become liquid. They have various temperatures at which they'll melt. And then they would take that liquid and they'd pour it into a form. We'll look at this in Romans 6 later. They would pour into a form and then out pops the image. Do you remember the silversmiths? Great is Diana of the Ephesians. We had this idol fall out of heaven and now we make copies of it. Jupiter sent it down from above and then we've made copies and we have our wealth from making these copies. Oh, did you know that they have a a piece of cloth where they got the image of Jesus' face? Just like Jupiter dropped his image from heaven and so they can make images. They know what Jesus really looked like. So they can make little copies, little paintings, little images. This is all heathen trash. So God says, destroy it all. Wipe it out. Pluck down their high places. Now this is very interesting. He'll also talk about the groves. Later, he'll talk about cutting down the groves. What is a grove? What is a high place? These are all creatures, aren't they? The groves are composed of trees. A high place is like a mountain or maybe a platform you build up on top of the mountain. What's wrong with a platform, God? What's wrong with painting? Don't you love beauty? Aren't you the greatest artist, Lord? Why would you condemn these things? Well, there's a very good reason. These are what are known as monuments to idolatry. This is where someone has built up idol worship or some kind of worship that God has not sanctioned. And he says, well, these remind me of the true God. Do you remember what Aaron said when they made the golden calf? Did he say this is the Egyptian bull God? Is that what he said? No, he said, this is the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. We're just going to make a little reminder of the Lord because God needs a little bit of help in his worship, does he? Does the Lord need help in his worship? God is a spirit. And because Jesus died on the cross, he didn't say, well, now you can make images of me. It's okay. After all, God was in the flesh. Now you can make your little graven shrines to all the demigods and the saints. It's okay now. I'm okay. Is God okay with that? God has not changed. God says, destroy all these monuments, all these things that the heathens left behind them. And guess what we find in the early church? They had no images. Our apologists will say, we have no altars. We have no incense. We have no images like you heathen. You need these things. We don't need them because we worship the true God who is not visible, who created all things visible and invisible, who has a hand, but not one that you can see. And yet he sees all without physical eyes. This is the true God that we worship. The heathen needed little shrines. They needed little places of special worship out in the forest. Oh, isn't it delightful? Isn't it appealing to our senses? So God says, destroy it. Have done with it. Do not allow it to stand in your presence. Why? Because when God says, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, he's also saying, only worship in the way that I have appointed. Where? In your imaginations. 
in your traditions, in your good intentions? No. Right here. He appoints the lawful method of worship. He's the only one who can. He's the only one wise enough. He's the only one who knows what actually pleases God. Do I know? Do you know? Does the Pope know? Does Billy Graham know? Nobody knows. Only God knows, and he has revealed to us in his word. So all other methods, what does God think of those? It's competition, isn't it? God says, I'm the legislator over my worship, and men say, yeah, but. But you forgot about beauty, Lord. You didn't make new covenant worship as beautiful as the Old Testament worship, so we need some incense and pictures, don't we? We need gilded walls and large cathedrals with smoke going up, don't we? We need a little, a little booth where we put some bread inside and it becomes God. That's what we need, Lord. We need a high priest. We need subdeacons and archdeacons and middeacons and whatever deacons. Who knows? We need all these things because you didn't think about it, Lord. No. Trash. It's idolatry. God says, you will worship me as I say. And in order to prevent you from falling to idolatry, get rid of this trash. Destroy all monuments to idolatry. Let us then not tolerate false worship. Whatever your station, whatever your place, seek to remove and tear down the monuments to idolatry. Don't seek to say, yeah, but let's Christianize the idolatry. Let's just take a little bit of their feminism and call it Christian feminism. Let's just take a little bit of their winter solstice and call it Christian winter solstice. Ah, the Christ Mass. Isn't that great? We got one for Nicholas. We got one for Mary. And Jesus, he gets one of those Masses too. Aren't we generous to Jesus? It's nonsense. We must not tolerate it. We must not use it. We must not approve of it. Whether you're a churchman, whether a father or a mother or even child. You must not participate in worship that God has not commanded us in his word. Some people even take the history of the Bible. See, John was circumcised on this day. Let's have a holy day for it. Jesus was circumcised on this day. Let's have a holy day for it. Jesus was born on this day. Let's have a holy day for it. No. Did God say? Did he appoint it in his word and say, Oh, now look, the apostles are observing Jesus' birth. Did they? Can you read one passage in the New Testament where the apostles observed Jesus' birth? Well, they did observe his resurrection, didn't they? And there is a means to remember his death. Oh, yes, there is. And also his incarnation. What do we call it? The Lord's Supper. Supper. That's exactly. Christ has come in the flesh. This bread is my body. This wine is my blood. This cup of the New Testament. We have lawful means to remember the incarnation. We have lawful means to remember his resurrection. When do we worship? When the Lord rose from the dead on the first day of the week, as the apostle ordained in all the churches, we gather on the first day. God has appointed means. Are we going to push them aside and say, but you didn't know good enough? You see, we need a once a year Christian Passover. No, we need a once a week Christian Passover. And we have it already. Why would we need to Judaize? Why would we need to hanker after ceremonies? Unless we think we are wise and God is not. Verse 54. 
He says, ye shall divide the land by lot for an inheritance among your families. Notice here, they were heirs of God. God had an inheritance for them. And that inheritance passed down from father to son. God said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And who else? And thy house. That's right, your household together with you. God has designed it this way. But notice, if they decided that they wanted to obey part of the way, sadly we find this to be the case in the history of Israel, would their life get better for halfway obeying? No. Have you ever had a thorn or a little prick in your hand or in your clothes? Maybe sometimes I get them in my socks. Try to walk and it pokes you every time. Can you imagine having those in your eyes? You think that would feel very good? I get a piece of dust in my eye, can hardly see and move because I can't get that piece out. What if it started pricking me every time I touched it to try to get it out? And what if I had multiple pricks in my eyes? Would you like that? I wouldn't like it. God says, I'm going to give you something you don't like if you won't obey me all the way. I'm going to make your life hard. I'm going to chasten you until you repent and do my will. And so if they let them remain, they would be pricks in their eyes and thorns in their side, almost impossible to get rid of this problem. Why not rather just obey from the beginning? That's his point. I will give you a pleasant life. I will bless you with a pleasant land, but you must listen to my voice, he says, and do my will. 